Well, I want to start this morning with a question. Here's the question. In all the world, who is the person, the one person that you know the best? Who is that person? Who are you closest to? My guess is for most of you, there's only so many answers to this question. For most of you, it's going to be your spouse. If you're not married, the answer is probably something like one of your parents, maybe a sibling, maybe a very, very close friend that you've known for a long time. But whoever that person is for you, get that person in your mind. And I want you to think about your relationship with them. Think about all that that consists of. Think about all the activities, all the conversations, all the time invested over the years that have resulted in you knowing that person the way you do. Now, how does your relationship with God look compared to your relationship with that person? How does your closeness to God compare with your closeness in knowing that person? Because no matter who you are, what the Bible teaches is the reason you exist is to know God. That's why He made you. The reason you exist is for a relationship with your Creator. This is why the Apostle Paul says, my goal is to know Him. He says, I consider everything else in my life to be a loss. That means not just lesser value, it's negative value. It's a a loss compared to the supreme value of what? Of knowing Christ. Not knowing about Him, knowing Him closely in a relationship. Do you view your relationship with God that way? I mean, can you honestly say that you would gladly suffer the loss of everything else as long as you can know God? Because if not, if not, spiritual disciplines, the regular habits of the Christian life will feel like a chore to you. They will be boring. They will be cumbersome. They will be unengaging. And so I have three goals for our time this morning. And our outline is going to follow these three goals. First, that you would believe that you can know God and you would understand what that means. Second, that you would intensely desire to know God and be growing in that desire throughout your entire life. And thirdly, that you would have the necessary tools to know God practically and employ them every day. That's what we're going to try to accomplish in a brief sermon this morning. Lofty goals, but hopefully God will stir your hearts. So point number one, you can know God. Paul does not state this explicitly in our passage in Philippians, but he obviously assumes it. If you couldn't know God, Paul is not dumb. He wouldn't say, my goal is to know God. If you couldn't know God, it's implied. And this concept is all over the Bible both implicitly and explicitly, that you can know God. Not only can you know God, this is the reason God created you. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. It doesn't, there's no verse that says you were made for a relationship with God, but it is so heavily implied in the narrative of creation. 
The Bible gives us four very specific illustrations throughout the scriptures. It says you can know God like a son knows his father. You can know God like a wife knows her husband. You can know God like a servant knows his master. You can know God like a sheep knows its shepherd. It's incredible. Paul, the apostle, also wrote this. He said this, rather. It was recorded by Luke in the book of Acts when speaking to the people of Athens in Acts 17, verse 27. A bunch of people who didn't know God. They didn't know anything about God. They didn't know the God of the Bible. And so Paul's telling them, and he says in verse 26, from one man, he goes all the way back, Genesis chapter 1, from one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. That's incredible. The reason you're here right now is because God preordained it. God puts you in a specific place and time and country and culture and family and situation. He preordained that. Now, why did he do it? We don't know all the reasons. God is infinitely wise. His ways are not our ways. The the way God's mind works, we can't even comprehend it. That kind of power, that kind of wisdom, we can't even comprehend it. But he tells us at least part of why he did it. Verse 27, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. You can know God. I think people today, maybe especially many Christians, completely take this fact for granted. That you can know God. They don't find it special. They don't find it surprising. They don't find it unexpected at all, which is shocking. Think about this for a moment. Imagine if I told you, hey, uh, the Meetama family, listen to this. This is exciting. We have tickets to go to the next Chiefs game in Kansas City. You'd say, hey, that's pretty cool. No, no, no. You don't understand. These are special tickets. We're going to be sitting in the skybox with Patrick Mahomes' wife and Taylor Swift. We're going to get to watch the game with them. And there's going to be all kinds of food. It's going to be amazing. But it gets even better than that. After the game, our whole family is going out to dinner with them, plus Patrick and Travis Kelsey. And that's not all. We have an extra ticket. Would you want to come with us? What's your answer to that question? (laughs) I don't care if you're a football fan. I don't care if you like the Kansas City Chiefs. If you know deep in your heart, like me, that the greatest football team is the Green Bay Packers, you're still going to clear your schedule and make it to that game. Because you understand, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, why does it seem like such a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? It's not because you get to go watch a football game, although for many of you, that's all it would take. You'd be like, I'm there. It's because of who you would have access to. You're not a Chiefs fan. You're not a football fan. It doesn't matter. You realize these are some of the most wealthy, famous, talented people in the world. And I get a chance to meet them and have a conversation with them and interact with them in a normal setting over dinner. That's special. That's a special opportunity. Now, let's take it a step further. Let's say in our ridiculous, impossible, hypothetical scenario, you come to the game, you're there with the Meetama family and T-Swizzle and uh, Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. And Patrick Mahomes, he leans over and he says to you, hey, 
you seem like a pretty cool person. Can I give you my cell phone number? Yeah, you can text me anytime you want. Call me anytime you want. You're ever driving through Kansas City, you got a place to stay. You don't need a hotel. You come to my place. As long as, if I'm ever coming through Iowa, I can stay at your place. Does that sound like a deal? Now, what would your response to that be? First of all, would you be surprised by that? Of course you would. <laughs> You'd be like, me? Why do you want to be friends with me? But would you be excited about that? Of course you would. Of course you would. You would tell anybody who would listen to you, hey, do you know I'm friends with Patrick Mahomes? You, you don't believe me? Check it out. You'd be FaceTiming him. Patrick, say hi to my friend. He doesn't believe that I know you. I mean, you would be over the moon. But do you understand that the creator of the universe... The king over every world leader who's ever lived. The author of all that is beautiful. The owner of everything. God himself. He says to you, I'll be your best friend. Isn't that wild? You can know me. And we're unimpressed. We're not excited we should be shocked by this. We should be dumbfounded. We should count ourselves as the luckiest people in the world. That God would make himself available to us. You can know God. Now, what does knowing God consist of? Two aspects. There's probably more, but at least two. It consists first of closeness. Knowing God is closeness. This part is fairly intuitive. What does that mean, closeness? Well, think back to the person you know best in your life. Why do you know them so well? What are the reasons? Well, I'll tell you why. Knowing someone well is a product of several factors. There might be more than these, but these are the basic building blocks of closeness. You spend time with them. You can't have a close relationship without time. You are committed to learning about them. Now, whether or not you're conscious of this or not, it's a reality with every close relationship. You're looking at the details. You're learning. How do they respond to things? What are they like? What do they dislike? What's their sense of humor? You share experiences with them. What are you going to talk about? Hey, remember that time we went on that vacation and this crazy thing happened? You share experiences with them. You pursue common interests with them. You're interested in the same things, the same sort of activities, the same sort of investments, the same sort of theological or philosophical or political issues. Your relationship revolves around common interests. And all of those are important. You cannot really have a close relationship with someone. You can't really know them without those aspects. But there's another factor. This last factor is by far the most important. So you can do all these things. You can spend lots of time with people. You can share experiences with them. You can be committed to learning about them literally for years and still never know them. I worked at Principal Financial Group for 10 years. I was on the same team with certain people for 10 years. We worked on projects together. We spoke to each other. We spent eight hours a day, every day for 10 years together, and I never really knew them. My guess is you know people like that in your life right now. Well, what was missing? This last factor. This is the most important aspect in knowing someone. They must reveal themselves to you. Have you ever thought about that? That person you want to know, they have to open up to you. They have to share their inner world with you. 
They have to tell you what they're thinking, their desires, their dreams, their hopes, their fears, their failures, their values, their priorities, their beliefs, their loves, their hates. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God, and he puts it this way. He says, a person who says, I know this horse, normally means not just I've seen it before, he means I know how it behaves and can tell you how it ought to be handled. Such a knowledge comes only through the prior acquaintance with the horse, seeing it in action and trying to handle it oneself. In the case of human beings, the position is further complicated by the fact that, unlike horses, people keep secrets. They do not show everybody all that is in their hearts. A few days are enough to get to know a horse as well as you will ever know it. But you may spend months and years doing things in company with another person and still have to say at the end of that time, I don't really know him at all. Thus, the quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. That is incredibly insightful. And it's true. And I think most people don't realize this. And this is just a side note. This is extra. But I believe this is the reason for many people's frustration in relationships. So they want, you want to know that other person and you're frustrated because, man, they just won't let me in. But what's going on is often you're not taking the risk of sharing your heart with them. You're not taking the risk of opening up to them. And so you don't open up and you never feel close and you wonder why. Well, people can't know you unless you reveal yourself to them. That's the end of the side note. Here's what's astonishing. God has revealed himself to you. Isn't that unbelievable? God has revealed himself to you. He's revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. God has revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. You might be thinking, well, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Even if you believe in the resurrection, he died, he resurrected, he's in heaven now. I don't get to see Jesus the way Peter did, the way John did, the way Bartholomew did. So what good does that do me? He's revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. Romans 16, verse 25 says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. God speaks through Jesus, but he speaks also through his word. He's revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ through the scriptures and by his spirit. John 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples says this in verse 12, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Jesus says there's more to say, 
I'm going to speak to you more, but not right now. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own, but He will speak whatever He hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, because He will take from what is Mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. God reveals himself to you in Jesus Christ through the scriptures by his spirit. So knowing God consists of closeness. Closeness. You can spend time with him. In his word, you can hear from him. In prayer, you can speak to him. You can learn about Him. You can participate in His mission with His body, the church. And it's all because He has revealed Himself to you in Christ through the Scriptures by the Spirit. Knowing God consists of closeness. But it's more than that. God is not a man. So we don't want to simply stop at comparing our relationship with God with our relationships with people. Closeness is not all your knowledge of God, your relationship with God consists of. It it does consist of closeness, but it also consists of, secondly, conformity. Closeness and conformity. Now, this is also an aspect of your relationships with people, but it's more of a natural byproduct. So you know intuitively that you become like the people you're closest to. This is inescapable. You will become like the people you spend the most time with. Proverbs actually says this. It says, walk with the wise and become wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. So you're going to become like the people you're close to, but that's more of a byproduct. With God, it's not a byproduct. God is not a man. God is the source of all goodness and life. God is the standard for what is right and true and just. God is holy. And so if you want to know him, you must become like him. It is a prerequisite to knowing him. You must be conformed to his likeness. Now this begs the question then, where does knowing God start? Because we're not like God, naturally. You don't just wake up one morning and say, I want to know God. And so... I'm going to be like God. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be pure. I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to be good. That's not how it works. Where does knowing God start? Well, Paul says this. Go back to Philippians chapter 3. Verse 8, Because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. So where does knowing God start? Knowing God is impossible without righteousness. That's what Paul's saying. It starts with righteousness. You have to have righteousness. The problem is your sin makes you unrighteous. You're not righteous. Nobody's righteous. We've been studying this in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, it says, there's nobody who's righteous. There's not a single person who's ever lived who is righteous. And being unrighteous makes you incompatible with God. It's very simple. That which is pure cannot be joined to that which is impure. 
That which is holy cannot be joined to that which is unholy. It's like trying to combine bleach and germs. It just doesn't work. You could try to do it, but it doesn't work. It's like trying to combine fire and ice. You could try to do it, but it won't work. I was just reading, I've been reading, started back through the Old Testament. I'm in the book of Leviticus, which can be difficult sometimes. I was just reading this morning, my time with the Lord, Leviticus chapter 11 which is all about what the people of Israel were allowed to eat. You can eat these animals, can't eat these animals. These animals, can't eat these animals. Here's the reasons why. And you're reading it and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it can be difficult. But then God explains why. He says, the end of Leviticus chapter 11, he says, you are to be holy because I'm holy. And you think, oh, okay, I get it. You are to be, if you want to know me, if you want to be with me, if you want to live in my presence, you must be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. So before you can know God, you have to be changed. This is the way it works. You have to be made righteous. And this is the primary reason Jesus came. Jesus came to reveal the person and nature and plan of God the Father, certainly. But he didn't have to become a man to do that. Jesus didn't have to become a human being to reveal more about God. God had already revealed so much about himself through the prophets. God is a God who speaks. God can reveal himself in any way he wants to. And he did it through Jesus. But the primary reason Jesus came was to die. God became a man to die on the cross, and he did it on your behalf. Jesus died in your place to receive your punishment for your sin. And the person who, like Paul in Philippians 3, will confess, I don't have any righteousness. I can't make myself righteous by obeying the law. I have nothing but sinfulness. I have nothing but unrighteousness. The person who will trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to make them righteous, that person will be given his righteousness. Jesus is the perfect, sinless Son of God. He died in your place, and he shed his blood to atone for your sin. And he says, give me your sin, give me your guilt. I'll take it. I'll be punished for it. You can have my righteousness. That's the exchange. That's why Jesus came. And Jesus called this, this, this thinking, this repentance, faith in what he did. He called this being born again. Your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. Your soul is united to the spirit of Christ. Knowing God starts with repentance and faith in Jesus, being born again. Now there's another important question. That's, that's where knowing God starts, but where does knowing God end? In other words, what's, what is the point What's the ultimate goal? Well, Jesus said this in John 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they may know you. In other words, knowing God ends with it results in, it leads to eternal life. So when a person becomes a Christian, they cross from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were facing eternity separated from God in hell. When you trust in Jesus, you are facing your destiny 
is eternity with God in heaven. That's not all Jesus means. Knowing God leads to eternal life, but also eternal life consists of knowing God. That's what he's saying. This is the point. The best part about heaven is that God is there. Do you ever think about heaven? My kids ask me all the time, will we be able to fly in heaven? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> we're going to be able to do this in heaven? Is there going to be that, that in heaven? Can we eat steak in heaven? I, I don't know. Probably not. But <laughs> the best part about heaven is that God is there. In heaven, God won't be invisible. God won't be inaudible. It won't require spiritual discipline and effort to know him. Isn't that amazing? We will effortlessly interact with God in all his glory forever. But between when you become a Christian and when you enter eternal glory, you're going to have to discipline yourself to become like your Savior. This is what Paul means in verse 10 when he says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So when you become a Christian, it's not that you will never have a lazy impulse for the rest of your life. Selfishness doesn't just go away. You know, I used to be selfish. I, I, never, have, I never have a selfish thought anymore. I don't have a selfish bone in my body. That's not how it works. Anger and lust and greed and every other kind of temptation are still going to be things you face every day. But if you want to know God, then you can't pursue those things. You have to reject those things. You have to turn away from them. You have to actually guard against them. You have to conform to his values. You have to conform to his character. You have to conform to his priorities. That's part of knowing him, and he will help you. He doesn't leave you on your own. Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'm going to go with you. That's why he sends us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will help you and empower you, but it's going to cost you something. It's not going to be easy. Paul compares it to dying, following Jesus to his death. Okay, that's our first point. You can know God. Second point, not only can you know him, knowing God is supremely valuable. It is supremely valuable. It is the best thing you could possibly do, experience, have. There's nothing better. This is what Paul says. He says, everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus says it this way. I love this. Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. So what Jesus is describing here is an assessment of value. And you do this all the time. Just a few days ago, we always get oranges, navel oranges, and we put them in the kids' stockings for Christmas. And so I was assigned with the task to go to hy V and look for organic navel oranges. And I found them. And I looked at the price, and I was like, I can't buy these. <laughs> I have to take out a loan to buy these oranges. It's ridiculous. You do this every day. Value assessment. 
And here's what Jesus is saying. Think about this scenario. Try to put this in modern terms. Imagine you're going to build a house, okay? You want to build a house, and so you're looking for a piece of land to build that house on. And you find a piece of land, and you're researching the property, you're testing the soil, you're making sure that it's good and solid, good place to build a house. And as you are doing your due diligence, you discover that there are gold deposits in the earth in that particular piece of land, and nobody knows about it. And it's not just like little pieces of gold, it's ribbons of gold. It is tens of millions of dollars worth of gold. And you find out that it's there. Now, I don't know if this is, I don't know what the legalities of this are, so just pretend with me for a moment. But the, the piece of land, it's just outside your price range. You, can't, you just can't afford it. So let's say it's half a million dollars. Okay, piece of land, half a million dollars. And in order to buy that, not only would you have to sell your current house, you'd have to sell all your vehicles, you'd have to empty all of your retirement accounts, and you'd probably have to take out a loan on top of it. But if you did all that, if you went through the process of just liquidating all your assets, then you could buy it. I don't know what you're worth, but let's say that there's like $100 million worth of gold. And if you buy this piece of property it becomes yours. There's not a person here who wouldn't go through all of the difficulty of selling everything you have to buy that piece of property because now you have inestimable wealth. You're you're a thousand times more wealthy than you were before. And Jesus says that is the heart you need to have towards him and his kingdom if you want to know him. You say, this is more valuable than everything I have. It's worth giving up everything I have to have Christ. Now, how do you know if that's your heart? Well, here's a couple of diagnostic questions. You should spend time with this. This is not something you're going to be able to reflect on in 10 seconds during a sermon. A couple of diagnostic questions. First, what are you sacrificing right now in order to grow in your relationship with God? When you look at your life and you say, what opportunities are you giving up? What, what kind of time are you giving up? What are you sacrificing in order to grow in your relationship with God now? Second question, what kind of energy are you spending on growing in your relationship with God? The older I get, the more conscious I am. I have like an internal battery every day. <laughs> And just like your phone, as it gets older, you got to charge that battery more often. <laughs> it's like it drains. I'm like, oh, got no more energy. And you have to allocate your energy to different things throughout the day that are important. What kind of energy are you giving, spending, and growing in your knowledge of God, your relationship with God? Now, we're going to talk in a second about the mechanics, the activities of how to know God. But before we do that, you have to have the right motive. You have to have the right desire, which is to know God. The, the motive for reading your Bible can't just be, I want to be the type of person that reads my Bible. My pastor said I should read my Bible. My Christian friends read their Bible. You know, what, what would people at community group think if, if I just said, you know, I'm not really reading my Bible at all. I better read it. Those motives won't last. Same thing for prayer. The same thing for going to church. If your motives 
are, you know, my Christian friends do this. My wife wants me to do this. I want my kids to do these things, so I better do these things. Those are not bad. They're not wrong. You're not going to be able to totally eliminate some of that thinking. But underneath it all, the motive must be, I want to know him. I want to know Christ. I want to have him. And once you have that as your desire, now you have something exciting. I mean, now you have something worthy to pursue, worthy to invest in. You have the right desire. Or maybe you say, I don't have that desire. I don't have that desire at all. At least if you know that that's the right desire, you're a lot closer to the heart of your problem. Your problem is not lack of discipline. That might be part of it. But your ultimate problem is that you don't actually value knowing God. Okay, point number one was that you can know God. Point number two was that knowing Him is supremely valuable. Point number three, how can you know Him more? You have to start with faith in Christ, but after that, how can you pursue closeness and conformity to Christ? We're going to start right now talking about this. We're going to finish this next week. So first thing, how can you pursue closeness and conformity to Christ? Hear His voice hear his voice. Remember, you can't know God unless he reveals himself to you. How are you going to know about him? He has to tell you about himself. How does he do that? He speaks. Think about your relationship with that person that you're closest to. How did you get to know them? They, they told you about themselves. You spent time with them, yes, but they, they told you, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm excited about. Here's what I'm scared of. They spoke to you. God speaks to you. How does he speak? Primarily through his word, written down in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, also the Apostle Paul, he writes this, all scripture, all of the Bible, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to know God, brothers and sisters, you need to read the book. You need to read the Word. And you need to remember when you read it, you're, you're, you're not just reading history. You're not just reading a biography. You're not just reading poetry or prophecy or law. You are reading those things. But more than that, you are hearing from God himself. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is living and active. When you read the Bible, God is speaking to you. And so if you want to hear his voice, you have to read it. Read the word. But it's way more than that. Not only should you read the word, you should also hear the word. Romans 10, 14, how then can they call on him whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? God speaks not only as you read his word, but as you listen to it. This is, this is why the people of God for 2,000 years and even further than that into the past, the people of God gather to hear the word of God taught because they want to hear from him. 
As you listen to it preached when the church gathers, you hear his word. As you listen to your friends at community groups share what God is teaching them in their time in the Bible, you hear his word. When you listen to sermons, and we have so much technology now, you listen to sermons online or podcasts, you're hearing his word. Next, study the word. Read the word, hear the word. Study the word. How's that different from reading the word? Studying is way different than reading. If you ever spent any time in school at any level, then you know this. Studying involves committing information to memory. It involves analyzing the details. So if reading gives you a breadth of knowledge, studying gives you a depth of knowledge. This means you have to slow down. One of the ways I think about studying is this. So just take any passage. Take Philippians 3 that we're looking at this morning. If you had to get up here and explain that passage to everyone, how would you handle it? Would you just read it two, three times? Okay, yeah, I think I got it. No, that's not what you do. You would write an outline. You know, what is the flow of the thinking here? You would ask hard questions. What are the, what are the difficulties in this text? Then you'd find the answers to them. You'd probably look at a Greek concordance You'd look at cross-references. What do other passages say? What is Paul saying about this topic elsewhere? You'd look at the meanings of words. You'd look up definitions. Studying is not only for pastors and professors. Studying the Bible is for every person who wants to know God. Study the Word. Next, meditate on the Word. Donald Whitney says that meditation is like making tea. I like this analogy. We've been making a lot of tea recently at the meat of my household. And you get, you get your boiling water, you pour it in your teacup, and then you have your tea bag. And if you just dip that in there one time and pull it out, what happens? It colors the water. It makes it the color of the tea. Then if you dip it a couple more times, what happens? Well, a little more of that color seeps out into the water. Now, if you were to drink that tea, how would it taste? It would taste like hot brown water. That's what it would taste like. <laughs> would not be very refreshing. It wouldn't taste like tea at all. The way you make tea is you take the tea bag and you let it soak for, for a long time. You let it steep in the water. Meditation is like that. Donald Whitney says meditation is like letting the Bible brew in the brain. It takes time. It takes intentionality. You have to hold it there. You have to think about it. You have to talk about it. You have to pray through it. David says this in Psalm 1, verse 1, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. That's the Bible, the Word of God. And he meditates on it day and night. He lets it brew in his brain. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The person, do you want to be like a tree planted by streams of water? I love that picture. Just solid roots, health, fruitfulness, He says it's not the person who reads the Lord's instruction every day, but meditates on it. So here's some practical suggestions. We could talk about a lot more, but you need to hear his voice. You want to grow in your closeness 
with God and your knowledge of God, your relationship with Him, you have to hear His voice. So here's some really practical suggestions. First, have a plan. Have a plan. Decide what you're going to read, what you're going to study, what you're going to meditate on, and do it systematically. If you, if you decided today, I want to run a marathon in October, Des Moines, Des Moines Marathon or Half Marathon, and you told me, you know what, I'm just going to figure it out. I would be thinking, you're not running that marathon. <laughs> That's what I'd be thinking. <clears throat> you have to have a training plan. These days, I'm going to run these mileages. These days, I'm going to recover. This is how much rest I need. You have to have a plan. And if you want to grow in your knowledge of God, you're going to need a plan. I would suggest go through something systematically. Get a one-year Bible plan. Maybe I'm going to read through the New Testament in six months. Figure out, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, not everybody has to read the same plan. Not everybody starts at the same place, but figure out what you're going to read and begin to do it with a plan. And your goal should be to hear from God every day. Every day. If you want to know Him, if you want to walk with Him, if you want to experience a relationship with Him, then it needs to be a daily activity. So have a plan. Next, keep a journal. This is so helpful. Journals are great for study and meditation because when you write your thoughts out, it focuses your thinking. It's, how, it's a part of how you can let the Bible brew in your brain. You hold it there by forcing yourself to write out, here's what God is teaching me. Here's the questions I have. Here's the applications I see. Sometimes I'll start with just writing the verse. Here's a verse. I've got all these thoughts. Let me just write it down. And then boom, bullet, 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 bullet. Question, application, prayer. I want to share, you know, a thought that I have about somebody else, a situation, write it down. It also helps you remember what you were thinking about this morning. <laughs> so have you ever had this experience? You read your Bible in the morning, you're like, man, that was good. My soul is so refreshed. You get to 3 p.m. Someone's like, hey, you know, uh, what's God teaching you? And you're like, oh man, I had a great quiet time this morning. What was I reading? Somewhere in Leviticus. Ugh. Write it down. Helps you remember. This is why we take notes when we're listening to lectures in college or in high school because it helps you remember. And if you forget, you can go back. Oh yeah, that's what it was. Keep a journal. Next, have a structure for accountability. Share with other people what your goals are for Bible study and share with them how it's going regularly. This, we do this in every other area of life. People who want to get in shape, the best way to do it, this is why these group fitness classes are so popular, because people will actually go. There's a structure for accountability. So share with your friends, share with your community group. Hey, here's what I'm trying to do with my reading plan. Would you ask me how it's going? Just, just doing that itself will help you to stay disciplined. How can you pursue closeness and conformity to Christ? Hear his voice. Now you need to understand, this is going to cost you something. It will cost you time and energy and effort. It will feel difficult. This is why Paul says in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, train yourself in godliness. Physical training is of some value, but godliness is valuable in every way since it holds promise for the present life as well as for the life to come. Reading, studying, meditating on God's word. We didn't even talk about memorizing God's word. It's like training. It's like training. The Greek word that Paul uses is hymnoso. It's where we get the English word gymnastics, gymnasium. It means to exercise 
vigorously. And this is why you have to keep the end in view. Why would you sign up to do something that's hard and costly only because you want it? Only because you want the results that that produces. You see the value in it. This is why people train for marathons or learn instruments or study to get their PhD. Those things require thousands of hours of training, but they want the end result. And if you discipline yourself to hear God's voice, what you will end up with is a rich, fulfilling, close knowledge of God. And next week, we're going to talk about, we talk about hear his voice. Next week, we're going to talk about how you can have his ear and you can belong to his body. So come back next week. For now, we're going to pray. God, thanks for these mind-blowing truths. We can know you. God, we can know you. We can hear your voice. It's absolutely incredible. And God, I pray that we would be a church that hears your voice. That we would be a church that disciplines ourselves individually to spend time in your word. Not just to read through it quickly and check a box, but to study it, to memorize it, to meditate on it. God, I pray that we would be a people who walk with you, who know you, who are excited about what you're doing in our lives, that we just can't wait to just get alone so we can pray and we can read and we can spend time with you. And we'd be so excited after that to go share with each other, hey, here's what God's teaching me. Here's how God comforted me. Here's how God gave me wisdom today. What a gift, Lord, that we can know you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.